Once again, good morning. Can I have you turn me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. We are currently in the book of Joshua, looking at this historical book, which it is, but looking at it from a Christian perspective as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. And as I said, the book falls into three main parts. Entering the land, and the land represents the fullness of all that, all God wants to do in our lives. The land represents God's perfect will for our lives, what we as Christians would call the life of the Spirit. And so we see that chapters 1 through 5 deal with entering, entering the land. Chapters 6 through 21 deal with conquering the land or taking possession of all that God has promised us. And then chapters 22 through 24 the theme is keeping the land. Now, we are in that first section, entering the land. And we said that it's divided into four main parts, and they're not equal by any means. Uh, we look at the person of victory in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Then the promise of victory in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. Then the power for victory in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1. And finally, the preparation for victory, here's the big one, from verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way through verse 15 of chapter 5. And so, so far we've looked at verses 10 through 18, a section we've called choosing between the good and the best. And that brings us into chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, we've entitled Seeking the Lost. And in these verses, we're going to be introduced to a woman by the name of Rahab. She bears the dubious title of Rahab the harlot. She was a pagan prostitute and a moral woman living in an immoral culture. She was an idolatrous woman. She worshipped the gods of the Canaanites who were many, many of whom were worshipped through sexual orgies. There was nothing in her that would cause God to love her for who she was. But we know that God did love her. In fact, God not only loved her, he had a plan for her life. In fact, her life would become a testimony of God's amazing grace. The story of Rahab is really the story of the love of God for a lost and dying world. The love that caused him to send his son into this world on a search and rescue mission. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. In fact, we know that Many people that Jesus ministered to and wound up following him and being saved were prostitutes like Rahab, or tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus. These made up a good part of the Lord's ministry. People that other people didn't want really anything to do with, Jesus hung out with. He got a lot of heat from the Pharisees for that. But he loved these people. And he reached out to them and they responded to his love and followed him. But the salvation of Rahab reminds us of something that Paul said in his first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 27 to 29. Listen to what Paul said. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh would glory in his presence. Look, only God's grace could take an immoral, Gentile, pagan prostitute and turn her into an esteemed, cherished mother of Israel. Because you see, 
Rahab would eventually marry Salmon, and they would have a son named Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, and they had a son they called Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse became the father of David, which means this once scorned, immoral, pagan prostitute, through the grace of God, became the great-great-grandmother of King David, and her name appears in the greatest genealogy in the history of mankind, the genealogy of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book of Matthew. I mean, if that is an amazing grace, I don't know what is. It reminds us of what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, as we read the story of Rahab, keep in mind, the important thing here is Rahab's faith. Which, by the way, is the most important thing in the eyes of God for any person's life. God is looking at the heart. And God is looking at the faith in that heart. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And folks, you realize what I'm saying. Not just faith in anything or anyone. Faith in the true God, in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in His Word. Without faith in the true and living God, we cannot please Him at all. No matter how sincere we are, no matter how many good works we offer Him, if we are not connected to Him through saving faith, there is nothing we can do to please Him. And so keep your mind on that. We tend to focus on behavior when God looks at the heart. Not that I'm justifying anything Rahab did on a behavior level with regard to sin. I'm just saying that was not an impediment for God to save her. He looked at her heart and saw her faith. Now, I'd like to divide this chapter into three main parts. The reality of Rahab's faith, verses 1 through 7. The reason for Rahab's faith, verses 8 through 14. And then the result of Rahab's faith, verses 15 through 21. We'll look at the first one today and finish the last two next week. First of all, the reality of Rahab's faith. Verse 1. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. He sends out two spies. Now there are those who take issue with Joshua. All right, They take issue with him for making the same mistake, quote-unquote, that they claim Moses made when he sent out the 12 spies 40 years earlier. See, they claim that Moses should have just taken the children of Israel directly into the promised land. I mean, this whole idea of sending the spies out, what did they need spies for? God had given them the land. What do you need spies for to scope out the land? The land's yours. Just go in and take it. See, Moses, they say, had a lapse of judgment here. He had a lapse of faith. And because of his lapse of faith, by sending the 12 spies into the promised land, it allowed 10 of them to come back and bring an evil report. And that weakened the hearts of the people. And they refused to enter into God's promised land, which caused God to judge them by driving them out into the wilderness for 40 years. And here they say, well, Joshua is making the same error. I mean, you know, he's doing the same thing Moses did, although they do concede that Joshua learned a little bit from Moses' mistake. After all, Moses sent out 12 spies. Ten were lousy, two were good. Joshua figured, well, you know, I'm just going to cut the ten out. I'll just send two in. Well, he's learning, but it's still a lapse of faith. Say, Moses, no, no, they're both wrong. That's ridiculous. Because in Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we read, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. Twelve tribes, twelve spies. This was all ordained by God. And even though we don't read directly that God told Joshua to send more spies in, we do know from the book of Deuteronomy when God told Moses that Joshua was going to take his place, and then God spoke to Joshua and said, and everything I've commanded Moses to do, you are to follow as well. Moses sent the spies in under the direction of God, and so Joshua sends a couple of spies in. I personally believe that Joshua acted under the guidance of God here. I, I believe personally that God, although not written down, God told him to send in these two spies. Now, here's the thing, though. As of this point, God had not revealed his battle strategy for taking the city of Jericho yet, right? He hadn't told Joshua and his generals how God was going to give them the victory. So when Joshua sent in the two spies, in his mind, this was a reconnaissance mission. This was an intelligence-gathering operation. We know from later on in the story that God intended to knock the walls down of, of Jericho down supernaturally, which meant these spies were not gathering intel. Who cares? Looking for the weaknesses in the enemy's defenses, that was irrelevant. God was going to knock the walls down and lead his people in a complete God-led victory. So the only reason that God would have for telling Joshua to send these two spies into the land was for the purpose, first of all, of saving Rahab and her family from God's judgment, and secondly, to bolster the faith of God's people, which we read, it surely accomplished that in verse 24. Now, they went in to spy out the city of Jericho. Jericho was one of many city-states in the land of Canaan, each ruled by a king. In fact, in chapter 12 of Joshua, verses 9 to 24, it gives us the name of each of the kings of these cities in Canaan. These were what we would call city-states. Each city was an autonomous state unto itself, run by a king who kept his own army, who governed those people, and so on. And so these were all over the land of Canaan. And Jericho was one of these city-states. Archaeology tells us it was a, basically a fortress with fortified gates and walls and towers. In fact, archaeology has shown that surrounding the, the city of Jericho were two walls, an outer wall and an inner wall. The outer wall and inner wall were separated by about 15 feet. But the outer wall, uh, I forgot how high it was, but uh, some commentators say it was 80 feet wide or thick which accounts for the fact that Rahab could have her house on the wall, right? Verse 15 tells us that she lived on top of the wall. You think, well, how does that work? Because we're thinking, you know, a little wall, right? You know, and no, this was a massive thing. And we also, it also then uh, tells us how that God could knock down the walls of Jericho, and yet her house was unaffected. Well, how did that work? Well, he didn't knock down that one section of the wall. You didn't knock down, have to knock down all the walls. You knocked down most of it. That's good enough. And obviously, he spared the section of the wall where her house was on, as we're going to see later as we uh, read the story. Now, Joshua dispatches these two spies to spy out the city. And these two guys found their way to Rahab's house, the very woman that God wanted them to make contact with. I don't think he revealed to them this was the woman. Why did they go to her house? Well, she was a prostitute. Men were always coming and going out of her house, right? I mean, 
if you don't want to be noticed, where do you hang out? You'd probably go to the house of a How did they know she was a prostitute? How did they know that her house was a house of prostitution? Well, you know, most of the prostitutes in those days, uh, they did their business with travelers. They had to let them know somehow. I don't think she had a red light bulb outside in her porch or a neon sign or anything like that, but there was some way that she communicated to people. You know, in those days, a, a, a harlot did not wear any kind of a veil or anything. Men had to know what they were paying for, so their face was uncovered. could be that she was looking out her window with an uncovered face, and they saw her and knew that that's what harlots did. So they made their way to her house, not realizing, probably, that it was all in the providence of God. Doesn't God lead our lives that way? We think that we're, you know, doing making our own decisions, going our own way, right? And yet God is leading us in supernatural, natural ways. I mean, there's no fire written across the sky, you know, go here, turn left. An angel doesn't appear, take us by the hand and lead us where he wants us to go. We just follow our heart. And God, if we're on a mission for God, God will lead us through our own heart. And we wind up exactly where God wants us to be. It's all the providence of God, right? So these men came to the very woman in the providence of God. They entered the land, came to the very house of the very woman God wanted them to make contact with. And we read in verse 2, and it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Question is, how did the king of Jericho find out so quickly about these guys? I mean, he knew there were two of them, these men. He knew where they were from. He said, from the children of Israel. And why they had come to, to scope out the land. How did he know so quickly who these guys were, where they were from, and what they were doing there? And whose house they were staying in? Well, no doubt, the Canaanites, every city, had sent spies of its own to, to keep an eye on Israel. I mean, there's no way you can hide three million people that are camped just across the river. I mean, I, they weren't blending into the scenery, folks. Everyone knew they were there. And they knew why they were there. They had just defeated two kings of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan River, Og and Sihon. People knew, look, they're coming for us next. And so these kings, and especially the king of Jericho, they had their own spies watching every move Israel made. They knew when these two guys left the camp of Israel. They knew that they had come across the Jordan River. And they knew that they had made their way to the house of Rahab, and they knew why they were there. And they were feeding the king information on a regular basis, keeping him informed of what was happening. And we read in verse 3. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Now Rahab took her life in her hands when she welcomed these spies and hid them. you got to understand something. Jericho was not a nice town. If I can liken it to anything. Remember the first Star Wars movie? When Han Solo, you know, was in that alien bar? What a rough place that was. All right. I kind of, when I was reading, I was thinking, you know, I bet that's kind of how it was. It's a rough crowd here in this city. If the king ever got wind that Rahab had aided and abetted spies who had come to spy out the land for the purpose of overthrowing Jericho, he would no doubt have seized her in a second, tortured her for a long while, and then had her killed. 
Why did she do it? Think about that. Why? Why in heaven's name would she ever do something like this? Why was she willing to help these enemy strangers to the point that she endangered her own life in the process? The only thing I can think of was by this time, Rahab had already changed her allegiance. She had already changed her allegiance. I believe by this time, Rahab had become a believer in the God of Israel before the spies ever arrived in Jericho. You say, can you prove that? I think so. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, Hebrews 11 is the great hall of faith chapter, which showcases some of the great examples of faith throughout history. It's interesting, Rahab, her name appears in this list. In verse 31, we read, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. See, she believed when her countrymen or her fellow Jerichoans, whatever, when the others in her city did not believe, when she received the spies with peace. She believed. Believed what? Believed in the God of Israel, no doubt. As we're going to see clearly, that was the case as we progress in this chapter. Also, turn to James chapter 2, where James says, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? What do you mean, James? Justified by works. Paul tells us that by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in God's sight. So what are you talking about here? How was she justified by her works? James is not saying her works saved her. He is saying her works were an evidence that she was saved. She was justified and her works validated or confirmed that. In fact, I'd like you to read with me from James chapter 2, verse 14 through the end of the chapter. I think this is an important topic. Let me just read these verses to you. Where James says, what is the profit, my brethren? If somebody says he has faith but does not have works... Can faith save him? Or what James is saying, can that kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, hey, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? How can you call yourself a Christian, really? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me, James says, your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, you realize that Martin Luther rejected the book of James as being uninspired or non-canonical. Why? Because Martin Luther believed that James was teaching that salvation came through faith plus works. 
James was not teaching salvation by faith plus works. He was teaching salvation by a faith that works. It's the very thing that Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're not saved by our faith plus our works. True saving faith will always have works that accompany it. True saving faith is never alone. I think it was, uh, was the Spurgeon who said, we are convinced that a man is saved by faith alone. But we are also just as convinced that the kind of faith that saves a man is never really alone. Because true saving faith always has actions to back it up, to validate the genuineness of it. To put it simply, as the Lord Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. The fruit does not make a tree a fruit tree. The apples on the branches of an apple tree don't make it an apple tree. It just proves it is one. And the fruit in a Christian's life does not earn salvation. It proves salvation is already there. And that's all James is saying. And so I believe that Rahab was saved at this point, that she had genuine faith. And that's why I've called this first point the reality of Rahab's faith. Because we know it was real. Why? Because it had works to back it up. I mean, the fact that she was willing to put her own life on the line to save two of God's chosen people demonstrates, demonstrates that she now identified with God's people Israel and no longer her own pagan people in Jericho. But there's something else here that we need to deal with quickly. Rahab's lie. What about this lie? Boy, commentators are all over the place with this. What about the fact that she lied? I mean, how in the world could God condone this, this lie she told? Well, she did lie. I mean, again, verse 4. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. That was a lie. And it happened as the gate of the city was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. That was a lie also. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. She lied again. She knew where they were. It says in verse 6, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the, under the stalks of flax, which she laid in order on the roof. Then the men who came to Rahab's house to find these spies, the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. As soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Man, she's lying her little head off here. You know, J. Vernon McGee said, the fact that she lied here, that was proof that she wasn't saved. Yet. As if true Christians never lie. I think that author Warren Worsby hit it a little closer to the truth. He said, and I quote, since Rahab was a believer at the time, how do we defend her lies? On the one hand, she demonstrated her faith in the Lord by risking her life to protect the spies. But, on the other hand, she acted like any pagan in the city when she lied about her guests. Perhaps we're expecting too much from a new believer whose knowledge of God was adequate for salvation, but certainly limited when it came to the practical things of life, end quote. After all, said one author, spiritual maturity is gradual, not instantaneous. Even John Newton, who wrote the famous gospel song Amazing Grace, 
continued for some time after his conversion in the slave trade before he was convicted about this base and degrading practice and gave it up. Look, we know that lying is wrong. And the fact that God had Rahab's lies recorded in Scripture is no proof that he approved of them. I mean, it was just a matter of historical record, right? I mean, I've heard unbelievers attack the Bible using this logic. Well, you Christians, you're such hypocrites. You talk about morality and holiness. Well, have you read your own holy book? Look at how many murders and how much immorality and how much horrible things that went on in your own Bible. As if that somehow is an attack against God and his word and, you know, wipes out the validity of God and his word. Folks, much of the Old Testament is an historical record of mankind. This is God holding up to mankind a mirror and saying, take a good hard look at yourselves. This is not an indictment of God or his word. This is an indictment of mankind. Just because God records what man has done doesn't mean he approves of it. He is just trying to show us the depth of our own depravity. That we are not good. In us there dwells no good thing. And that we need God to come into our hearts to change us from the inside out. So far from God justifying the things in the Bible, he's just presenting the historical record of what went on. But we know God has a lot to say against lying. We know that in Proverbs 20, uh, 12, verse 22, it says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. I think all of us would agree that habitual lying is wrong. It's an abomination in the eyes of God. The question is, is it never wrong? Or is it never right, I should say, to lie? The question, we know habitual lying, that's definitely wrong. It's an abomination to God. Is there ever a time when God says telling a lie is acceptable? We know that when Rahab's name appears in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, verse 31, as being one of the great examples of faith in the Bible, it never condemns her for lying. It just says, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Is it always wrong to tell a lie? Is there never a situation where a lie might be acceptable to God? Well, Warren Worsby again has something I'll read to you. He said, you know, let's be honest that most of us would hesitate to tell the truth if it really were a matter of life and death. It's one thing for me to tell the truth about myself and suffer for it. But do I have the right to cause the death of others, especially those who have come under my roof for protection? Many people have been honored for deceiving the enemy during wartime and saving innocent lives, and this was war. He says, suppose we looked upon Rahab as a freedom fighter. Would that change the picture at all? Would it? This is something that each of us has to determine and work out between ourselves and God alone. Years ago, I saw a debate on the John Ankerberg show between Josh McDowell, a leading Christian apologist, and a representative from the Playboy Enterprise. And at one point in the debate, this subject actually came up. And Josh McDowell made the point, he said, when it comes to saving lives, human life supersedes the law of God with regard to lying. And if you lie to save lives, like Rahab did here, or like 
Corey Ten Boom's family did in Nazi Germany when they hid Jews from the Nazis? That God will not condemn you for that because you're saving lives. And then he used this scripture to kind of support that. Turn to Mark 2. Mark 2, starting in verse 23. Now it happened that he, Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in hunger, uh, was in need and hungry, he and those who were with him, his men, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? See, God had ordained that every week 12 fresh loaves of bread would be baked, one for each of the 12 tribes, and put on the table of showbread. And the 12 loaves that, that uh, they replaced, those loaves could be eaten by the priests. But only the priests. God forbid anyone else from eating the showbread except for the priests. Now, David was running from Saul, he and his men. And who knows how long they had been on the run and how hungry they were. And so they came into the house of God, and there was the bread on the table of showbread. And so they ate that. That was a violation of God's law. They, had, they broke God's law in doing that. For they were famished. And if they didn't keep up their strength, maybe Saul would have overtaken them and definitely would have killed them. So you could look at it as a matter of life and death. And Jesus said that they weren't condemned for that. Even though they broke God's law, he seems to be telling us that when it comes to life, there are times when life is at stake, it supersedes the law of God. Now, I'll let you work that out between you and God. I don't know what else to say about it. I mean... I've heard a lot of different, you know, a lot of different input on the subject, and I'm just wanting to just throw it out to you to, to pray about it. Whatever you come to terms with, that's, you know, between you and the Lord. But one big question still remains. How could Rahab have such a remarkable faith and still be a harlot? You would think that that would be, you know, the first thing that she would stop. Well, we could answer that in one of two ways. Either she was so young in her faith at this point that, like John Newton, the conviction of the Holy Spirit had not really taken hold of her heart by this time with regard to the immorality of her livelihood. I mean, Paul did write to the Corinthians and say, and, and they were saved, yet some of the men were still going to prostitutes in the city of Corinth. And he says, well, I can't believe this. You're, some of you are still going to prostitutes? Don't you understand Christ is in you when you join yourself to a prostitute? You're joining Christ to that prostitute? So it's possible that true believers can still go to prostitutes. I would imagine it's possible for a true believer to still be a prostitute for a while after they get saved. Not that God's condoning it, of course. Or maybe, maybe by this time she had already given up her prostitution when she had gotten saved. You say, well, wait a minute. She's called Rahab the harlot. That doesn't mean that she was still a practicing harlot. You're losing me. How does that work? You'll have to come back next week. Because we'll, we'll tackle that next week when we finish chapter 2, a message that I've entitled, No One is Worthless to God. No one is worthless to God. But let me just conclude by saying this. The story of Rahab is the story of 
redemption. That shows us that God is no respecter of persons. That God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And in God's word, he will often showcase some of the worst sinners, people like Rahab, Zacchaeus, or the woman by the well in John 4. People that were so bad, nobody else probably thought they could be saved, and yet God reached out and saved them. And he did that to show us that if he can save the worst of us, there's hope for the rest of us, right? See, God wants you to know that no matter what kind of life you've lived, no one is beyond the grace of God. Therefore, nobody is excluded from his invitation to come to Jesus for salvation. The very last invitation in the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17, listen to what it says. And the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever, notice, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. No exclusions, no limitations, right? Whoever. You know, I love the Lord for a lot of reasons. But you know what? I love it when he used, when he tried to express the idea of salvation and coming to him. He said, I am the bread of life, right? I am the living water, right? If you're hungry, eat of me, you'll never hunger again. If you're thirsty, drink of me, you'll never thirst again. In other words, you'll be saved, right? I mean, bread and water are about as basic as it gets to all people on the face of the earth. If Jesus would have said, I'm the caviar of life. Or I am the fine wine of life. Come to me and eat and drink. Well, most of the people living back then would have said, well, that's me out. I can't afford that stuff. No, he said, I'm bread and I'm water, which means I'm available to anybody on the face of the earth, no matter how wealthy or poor, everybody has access to bread and water, which means salvation is available to anyone, whoever wants to come. Come and drink the water of life freely. Jesus is inviting you this morning, if you're not saved, to be a member of his family which is made up of many ex-prostitutes, drunkards, murderers, thieves, and every other kind of sinner that you can think of. People that most other people want nothing to do with, don't want to associate with. People that society has pretty much written off and rejected as hopeless and worthless. Our God reaches down to the scrap pile of humanity, to those who have been discarded. Man, their lives are too messed up. They're too far gone. There is no hope. Just cut them loose. Just discard them. They're no good to anybody. They're, they're beyond hope. And God reaches down, lifts them up by faith, adopts them into his family, transforms their life, and begins to use them for his glory. That's amazing grace. Only God can take a battered and broken life, battered and broken by sin, and make it a new creation where old things die, they pass away, and where all things become brand new. Again, the story of Rahab is really, in miniature, the story of redemption, isn't it? For all people. One of the most dramatic stories of redemption I've ever heard was about a man by the name of Mel Trotter. Maybe some of you have heard his name. Mel Trotter was born in 1870, died in 1940. 
I read his testimony from his own pen online. He said, when I was a young guy, he said, I was well-liked. I made friends easily. And because I was so outgoing and all, some of my friends were grooming me to be a politician. They began to take me to social events, because that's what politicians do, right? they got to connect with people. Well, social events bring with them social drinking, right? Which a lot of people can handle without it taking control of their life. Mel was not one of those people. And as he began to drink socially, it began to enslave him in a way that few of us could ever imagine. He said, the more I drank, the more it got a hold of me. The first to turn their backs on me were all my politically connected friends. They didn't want to hang around with the young lush, so they turned away from me. He said, as time went on, the more I drank, the worse things got. I went from job to job, apartment to apartment. And as time went on and I drank more and more, he said, the jobs got crummier and the apartments dirtier. Until I found myself eventually living in Chicago in a rat-infested cellar apartment with my wife and little baby girl. He said, why she stay with me, I'll never know. He said, one day, my daughter got very sick. I came home to find a good-hearted doctor there who knew he was not going to get paid for what he was doing, his services, who took money out of his own pocket, stuffed it in my hand, and said, Mel, quickly, go down to the, to the drugstore, two blocks down. Go quickly and get a prescription. Even now, it might be too late to save your daughter. So Mel ascends the stairs of his cellar flat, walks out into the street, looks to the left. There was the drugstore two blocks down, but to the right was a saloon a half a block down. He said, something came over me, and I went to the saloon. I walked in, and I said, drinks are on me. We drank all afternoon until the doctor's money ran out, and some other fool put his money down in the bar, and we drank all night. When the saloon closed, I was so drunk that the owner just threw me in a back room to sleep it off. The next morning when he arrived, I was still in a drunken stupor. I lapsed in and out of consciousness for the rest of the day. Finally, by that evening, I staggered home, descended the stairs into my basement flat, and there I saw my wife standing to the side talking with another woman. In fact, they were actually crying. I looked around. Of course, my apartment had no furniture. I never provided for my family. But there was a pedestal in the middle of the room with a small wooden box on it. I walked over and looked inside and saw the body of my little baby girl. Someone had put a new dress on her and a pair of brand new shoes. He said, I'm not even sure I was processing reality properly at that time. As I looked at her cold little body, suddenly this incredible urge to have a drink came upon me. All I could think about was having a drink. He said, I would have given anything to have a drink. While my wife was not looking, I took the shoes off of my little daughter's body and stuck them in my pocket, made my way up to the street, found a guy, sold him for a few pennies, went and had a drink. He said, some time later, after a prolonged period of drunkenness and debauchery, I figured that life, the world, and especially my wife would be better off without me. And so I staggered down the streets of Chicago, headed towards Lake Michigan, where I was going to throw myself in and drown myself. As I was walking down the street, staggering down the street to 
throw myself in the lake, I passed by a building. There was a man standing outside that building. The building was Pacific Garden Missions. The man said, friend, why don't you come inside here for a little bit? It's warm. So before I knew what was happening, I was ushered into this room, seated in a seat. And there I heard a man preaching. I had never met, didn't know, but he was talking right at me. He was saying, friends, maybe you didn't even plan on being here tonight. In fact, maybe you were contemplating taking your own life. Because you didn't think anyone cares. You didn't think you had any hope left. There was no point in going on living. And so maybe tonight you have come here as a person who was ready to take your own life because nobody cares and there's no hope. I'm here to tell you there is somebody that cares about you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you invite him into your heart, not only will he recreate your life and give you hope, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will give you the grace to go on living the kind of life he wants you to live. Mel said, that night... I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, and I became a brand new creation on the spot. I became a new man. My wife got a new husband, one who had been cleansed of sin and debauchery. And Mel went on to become a preacher. In fact, if you go online, you'll still find Mel Trotter Ministries, places throughout the country where alcoholics and drug addicts can go for help. Mel preached the gospel for many years. He saw hundreds and hundreds of people come to Jesus Christ. His message was always the same. Put your faith in Jesus, the only one who has the remedy for broken hearts, broken homes, lives broken by sin. If God can save the worst of us, there's hope for the rest of us, right? God cares. God cares. And there's only strength in him. Man can only try to reform you. Only God can recreate you. And that's what I think the story of Rahab really is all about. How that God reached out to a lost, immoral sinner and saved this woman. Not only saved her, he had a plan for her life. She became the great-great-grandmother of King David, and her name appears in the most exalted genealogy in the history of mankind, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, which was God's way of saying, I am no respecter of persons. I don't care what kind of life you've lived. If you come to me, I'll make you brand new. I will honor you as, if, as much as I will honor anybody who comes to put their faith in me. May God cause us never to forget that lesson. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you're a God of second, third, fourth, tenth chances. We thank you, Lord, that no matter how bad we have lived our life, no matter how low we have sunk, Mel said there were times in his life where he really felt he, felt he had to reach up to hit bottom. He was so low. Father, the devil is telling many people their lives are so hopeless they're so far gone. The only hope is suicide. Just end it. That won't end their problems, Lord. That'll just begin them for eternity. Father, touch those here this morning. Touch the people that we know and love who are in bondage to alcohol and drugs or pornography, cigarette, whatever it might be, Lord. Father, we pray that 
you would show yourself strong, mighty to save. That, Lord, you're still capable of setting the captives free and making them brand new creations in Christ. Thank you for the story of Rahab, Lord, how it encourages our hearts. We just praise you for this. We pray that you'd bless the rest of our study in chapter 2 for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.